chapter 17 of the Gospel of John, we are going to conclude now our study in John 17. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to stop our study in the Gospel of John. No, we're going to continue on because we want to get through the whole of the Gospel. But this is a fifth in, in, in a series of studies in John 17 that focus upon the prayer of Jesus to his Father. Now, it is significant to note that this prayer in John 17 is only a part of one night that began in John 13. And we've spent weeks, if not a few months, as it were, in John 13 through 17. All one night. Jesus, having prepared the feast of the Passover meal for his disciples, begins that particular evening by washing the feet of his disciples, by stating things to them like, the servant is not greater than his master. As you have seen me do, so must you do. If I have washed your feet, you wash one another's feet. You serve at the lowest level. He uses that night to reveal his betrayer, even though everyone thought that Judas Iscariot was only going out to do an errand for Jesus, but he sends him off. And in that time alone with his disciples, the eleven, the faithful, he spends the most intimate time of speaking to them from his heart. He deals with letting them know of his leaving the earth. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. I'm going to prepare a place for you. We'll come back to that in a moment. He made it very clear who he was to them. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. He goes on to speak about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the one that he would send, the other Comforter who would be with them when he would return to the right hand of the Father. He spoke greatly of the mutual love of Christ, of, of, his, of his heart with his friends. He spoke of the love of his Father. He spoke much about his Father. And he spoke a lot about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of his disciples. And then he arrives at John chapter 17 with one intent as they are moving now toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the presence of his disciples, he begins to pray. Significant. For many times he would go off by himself to be with the Father. But now he prays in their presence for them and for other things. We'll come through, uh, through a review of that in a moment, but let's look at the last three verses of this chapter because those are the last three verses that we are going to look at in John 17. Jesus said, Father, 
I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Jesus, in making his way to the cross, and after that Passover discourse that he gave to his disciples, his beloved disciples, he stops to pray to his Father, as I said, in the presence of his closest followers, the eleven. And while many call this Jesus' high priestly prayer, it certainly reveals the intimate nature of love between the Father and the Son. The content of the prayer, which we have looked at in a somewhat in-depth manner, can be outlined this way. In the first eight verses, verses 1 through 8, Jesus prayed actually for himself. He prayed for himself to be glorified, that he might glorify the Father. And when you consider that, realize that everything that Jesus did was always done to glorify his Father in heaven. He prayed also that he might give eternal life with the power given him by the Father. And he prayed to finish the work. He prayed for the Father to restore him to his former glory because he has revealed the Father's name. He has revealed that name above all names as far as the Father is concerned. He prayed for the Father to restore him because the men God gave to him now know that he is the Son of God. The revelation of God himself who have received his words know his origin and believe that he is sent from God. So that was the initial part of his, his prayer. But in verses 9 through 19, he prayed for his disciples because they had been entrusted to him, because they belonged to both Jesus and the Father, and because he received glory through them, and because Jesus was leaving the world. So, therefore... He prayed that the Father would keep them and keep them together as one since they were in the world and he had kept them all but one, the son of perdition. He prayed that they might have joy in all its fullness though they were in the world. You know, that's a prayer for us as well. That we might have his joy fulfilled in us in the midst of this chaotic and crazy and contemptible world. He prayed that the Lord would keep them from the evil one, from Satan, and because the world hated them, that they were not of the world, but they were needed in the world and had the same nature as Jesus. They were needed in the world because they had now the message of the gospel. And they had been given the commission, and would be given, I should say, the commission. They would be given the commission of going forth into all the world 
to preach the gospel, to make disciples of all nations, to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But they were given this commission because they had the same nature as Jesus. Jesus was in them. Remember John 15. He prayed that the Father would sanctify them as they were sent into the world. Uh, he wanted them to be sanctified, to be set apart from the world, to be set apart unto God, unto Christ, unto the things of God, unto the things of the kingdom of God, unto, unto the things of Messiah, that they were separated unto these things, and that they would be sanctified through the truth, through the word of God. Lastly, at least to this point, he prayed for all future believers. I would include us who believe in Jesus today. That we might be one, as he and the Father are one. And as we said last time, that's the standard. That's just the standard for the church. To be one as the Father and the Son are one. He prayed that the world would believe through the church, through every believer in Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. He prayed that we would take seriously our purpose in proclaiming Christ. And he prayed that God's glory would be their source. And certainly, the glory of God would come to them soon in the person of the Holy Spirit. He prayed, excuse me, he prayed that believers would be perfected in unity. And that's, the source for that was Jesus within them. To convince and to convict the world that God sent Jesus, that God sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And in all of that, Jesus prayed for future believers and for all believers in every generation because his Father loves all believers with an everlasting love. And that, in a nutshell, is Jesus' prayer to the Father. But we look now at the conclusion of his prayer and in verse 24, as we've read already, Father, he says, I will that they also, whom <clears throat> thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now, understand that here there, there is a desire that Jesus is expressing. There is a desire that Jesus is expressing here in this particular verse because he wants us to be where he is. Jesus wants us to be where he is. And he certainly expressed this before, didn't he? In fact, in John 14, and I'll read this again to you, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So this is, in effect, the second time that Jesus is making that clear. 
both to his disciples and to his father. Now, you need to understand that in the long run, Jesus doesn't need us. Now, now understand that. Okay, don't, don't throw anything at me. In the long run, Jesus doesn't need us, does he? He had perfect communion with the Father and the Holy Spirit from eternity. So in effect, we, we need to understand, he doesn't need us. But we undoubtedly need him. We need Jesus. And yet, listen, he loves us so much that he desires us to be with him. Now, you know, we've probably heard secular songs on the power of love, you know. <laughs> this is the power of love. This is the true power of love. Because in effect, heaven would be incomplete for us without Jesus. He spoke of mansions. But it is not the house that makes the home. It is not the house that makes the home. It is the loved ones we find there. And for him to say, I go to prepare a place for you. There are dwelling places. I go to prepare a place for you. But when we go there, who are we going to be with? So that where I am, there you may be also. So, in effect, then the opposite of what we said about heaven is also true. We said heaven would be incomplete for us without him. Well, the opposite is just as true. Heaven is incomplete for him without us. Why would God send his only begotten son to come to this world to show the love of the Father, to show the one who is really the creator of the heavens and the earth, to be the very express image of the Father, the express image of the God who created all things good and, and, and right and holy and just and true, to come and then to send his son to die on a cross, to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and then to rise again from the dead on the third day. For him just to go back and to sit at the right hand of the Father and we, where would we be? What sense is in that? No, he died to give us a new hope, a new home, a new habitation, a new place, and a new day that never ends. Isn't that something that should excite our hearts when we think of what Christ did on our behalf? And then to think, I'm coming back, by the way, for you, and I'm going to take you so that where I'm at, you're going to be there too. Oh, that's the only sense that this could make. Heaven is incomplete for him without us. Think for just a moment where he is with his disciples while he's praying. That's what I mean. Think about where he is when he's praying. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and every step they take gets darker and darker and darker. They're on that road. 
and the darkness is all around and it's closing in on them with every step. And Jesus is surrounded with whom? He's surrounded by a ragged bunch of men that so-called great men of the world would have never looked twice at. <clears throat> you know, it would be said of them much later what the world considered them to be. Acts chapter 4, verse 13, where it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, this of course after Pentecost, this of course after, uh, uh, you know, the church now has the, the Holy Spirit upon them, and, and, and Peter goes out and preaches uh, in, in the boldness of the uh, power of God. When, when they saw boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men. That's what they think. In fact, that's what the world thinks about believers in Jesus Christ today. But they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Folks, that was a miracle in itself. But you need to consider something. Are we truly any better than they? Are any of us truly better than those disciples, those 11? Think about the question. Because they weren't polished or cultured members of the upper social class. They weren't successful businessmen selling their books or DVDs on how to climb the financial ladder to greater wealth. They weren't the intellectuals of their day. None of them were no, of nobility. And they certainly didn't try to fleece their flocks just so that they could fly $54 million jets to avoid the demons on commercial flights. Anybody heard about that this week or last week? Some charlatan going out there telling people that he needs to have a jet because he can't co fly commercial flights because there are demons on those flights. Well, there's, now there's one less demon. <laughs> that is the absurdity. The absurdity. Of trying to change the gospel of Jesus Christ to fit a lifestyle. You know what the lifestyle of the believer is? Death. We die to self. We die to sin. We die to this world. And we die unto Christ so that Christ lives in us. That's the gospel. <sighs> Forgive me, Lord. Got to calm down. Okay. Getting back to the disciples, they wore homespun clothes. Most were fishermen from the north. They spoke their native Aramaic with a thick country accent. And they were made fun of it, by the way, too, for how they spoke. Some of them barely understood anything that Jesus said to them, and, and they'd run away at the first sign of trouble, as we'll see later. They could hardly be compared with the order of creation that surrounded the throne on high. The angelic beings, whether Gabriel the messenger or Michael the warrior, the, these were far greater and more gifted than any member of Adam's race, but, but especially this particular motley crew. And yet, what did Jesus pray? Father, I will that they be with me where I am. Which makes me feel real good because 
that's a good invitation for us too. Because we're a pretty motley group ourselves. I pray that they be with me where I am. And not only they, but us. And what a wonderful picture of what true grace and mercy is. Grace, the undeserved favor of God. We don't deserve this. There's not one thing that you or I deserve. Mercy. Mercy is God keeping us from what we do deserve. How many times if we had been Messiah and the disciples had done all of the things that they had done during the three and a half years of his, of his ministry, how many of us would have said to them, hey, listen, you know what? I, I, I'm replacing you. You just don't get it, man. I, I want somebody that gets it. These guys didn't get it until the very end. But they got it. That says a lot about how Jesus chooses He's chosen us. And he hasn't gotten rid of us yet, praise the Lord. You thankful for that? I would be. We make mistakes every day. There are those who act like if they don't make mistakes at all. That's kind of, that's kind of bold. I just thank God for his grace and his mercy. That's why John Newton came to my mind today. Because that's how we need to see ourselves. We're great sinners, but Jesus is a great savior. Paul the Apostle encouraged the hearts of the Corinthian congregation with these particular words, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. He said, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, if our earthly house, that's your body, that's, that's this temple, as it were. If we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. That's, what, that's what's awaiting us, you see. And notice what he says in verse 2. He says, for in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. We groan for this. If we're not groaning for this, what are we groaning for then? Too many people who say that they're believers in Jesus Christ are groaning, groaning for the things of this world, groaning for things that, that can only bring temporary satisfaction. We need to be groaning. He's really speaking, if you combine this with Romans chapter 8, he's really speaking of the coming of Jesus for his church. <clears throat> this is what we're groaning for. Lord Jesus, come quickly. Desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. 
He speaks to the Colossian church in Colossians 1, verses 3 through 5, and he says, We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. And notice verse 5, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Their hope was in heaven. Not anywhere here. I mean, praise God for the things that God has given us. Yes, let's do that. Praise the Lord for, for you know, the, the, the places that we can go to, re, to rest and, and find respite, you know, for our, for, for our tired days and, and, and whatnot. You know, that, that brought to mind the fact that, you know, some of us, you know, Pastor Sean and, and just had a little vacation and, and we had a little vacation, you know, uh, just recently we, uh, we, we, we took early vacation, but, but here's the thing. We're going to be here through the whole summer. I'd rather be someplace cool, but you know what? I took it early. We're here now. It's going to be hot. Okay, so what? All right. Some people, man, they're just saying, oh, I just want to go to paradise. There's got to be paradise on earth. What about Hawaii? Well, that paradise is burning up. See, the fact of the matter is, where is the real paradise? I think of that, that, that thief on the cross who, who really did finally turn to the Lord and cried out for mercy from him. And, he said, and Jesus said to him on the cross, on that day, he says, on this day you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say you'll be with me in Hawaii. You'll be with me in paradise. The hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Thank God for the places he allows us to go. But how much greater should our hearts be groaning for our real home, our real eternity, our real home in heaven. We also note in verse 24 that Jesus mentioning, uh, mentions his deity there. He says that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. How, how, how great it is for him to be able to say I want them to see me in all of my glory because all I've ever shown them was you Lord. And I want them to see how much you've loved me. He wanted them all to see the glory of his deity, the glory that was his long before time began. He wanted his own to see him as he really was. He longed to bring them into that realm where they could bear to gaze on the brightness of his glory. And that is something, of course, that we read in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Where Paul says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, which makes Jesus a creator. And then he says in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of the Father's glory, and the express image of his person, the exact stamp of God the Father, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. He wants his disciples to see the brightness of his glory. And now, in the last two verses of his prayer, oh, and by the way, 
think about this, and this just this thought just came to mind. He wants them to see that glory of his. Because in just a few hours, they're going to see him with every stripe, with every beating, with his flesh torn and nailed to the cross. And now in the last two verses of his prayer, Jesus' thoughts go out to those in the world blinded to his person, blinded to his presence, what we can call the blind majority. That exists today as well. Listen to the words of Jesus in verse 25. He says, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And these have known that thou hast sent me. And I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. You know, it's not just Jesus wanting to add a very nice little adjective before Father by saying, Oh, righteous Father. That word is very specifically and intentionally used by Jesus because the world does not consider a righteous God. I mean, think about it. The world, would, the, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil would have people believe, you know, that there's only one, there, there, that there's many roads to God because there's many gods, and actually, you know, whatever gods you have, I mean, eventually we're all, we all can get to them, you know. There are many roads to God. Really? That's not what God himself says. The Lord says, I am God and there is none other. So you want to argue with him, go ahead. And I don't think the other gods want to argue with the God who created all things. But even Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. There's, there's no other way to God but through Jesus. These are the lies of, 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 of the enemy to confound people into thinking, you know, we, we all believe the same thing. We all believe the same Eventually, we all believe the same thing. Really? Let me just remind you of 9-11. He says, O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me. This is, in essence, Jesus' final and sad lament. He had come to make his Father known. This had taken place for the better part of 33 years, the last three of them on the public stage before the eyes of many. The sad indictment of this world is that the world still does not know him. This is a striking testimony. The world has not known God. Jesus was the revelation of God. Therefore, all who saw Jesus saw God. And yet, the world rejected him and rejects him still, refusing to know him. Consider, if you will, Romans chapter 10 for just a moment, verses 1 through 4. Paul in chapters 9 through 11 gives this, this discourse on, on 
his love for his people Israel. And he speaks about Israel in chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. Here in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Well, that says a mouthful, doesn't it? Because he goes on to say, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God. And by the way, Paul was in that same group of people before he came to know Jesus. And he says, For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Saul of Tarsus had a great zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. And he'd be the first to admit it after he came to Christ. And notice what he says in verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness, the ones who had been given the law, the ones who had been given the word, the ones who had been given the very revelation of Messiah himself through the word of God, through the law, through the sacrifices, through everything that was done, through the tabernacle, through the temple. He says they being ignorant of God's righteousness. See, they had everything down except one thing. God is a righteous God. And going about to establish their own righteousness, there's the problem. Have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Do you know as believers in Jesus Christ, we are told in the scriptures to put on the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because our righteousness is as filthy rags. We take those off and put on the righteousness of Christ. So he goes on to say, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, which means the goal of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. The goal is Yeshua. The goal is Jesus. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 20. Ephesians 4, 17 through 20. Paul again says this, I say therefore and testify in the Lord. Now remember, he was speaking of the Jews first. And how many times do we see, even in the Gospel of John, the very beginning, that he came unto his own, his own did not receive him. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Paul in Romans chapter 1 talks about uh, the Gospel being to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There's always that need to understand that. He came for the Jew first and then the Gentile. And here's where we come to chapter uh, 4 of Ephesians verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Where in Romans he had been speaking to the, the, those who were Jewish and of the Jewish mindset in the church in Rome at that time. Now in Ephesians, there was a, a, a greater majority of, of Gentiles in that particular church, and he speaks to them on this behalf, and he, uh, on, on their behalf for this way, or, or in this way. You henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk. Don't walk like the Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, he says, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Folks, he said ignorance in Romans chapter 4. I'm, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 10. He talks about that ignorance that the Jews had of the righteousness of God. He speaks to the Gentiles and says there's an ignorance because their understanding is darkness, because they are alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness or, or, or lust of all kinds to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, but you have not so learned Christ. So this is the blind majority. And while there are many 
Jewish people who today are, are seeking after God in many different ways. There are those who are finding their Messiah in Yeshua. More and more and more. This is another sign of the coming of Jesus. And how many Gentiles are beginning to realize that when they turn to the light of the glory of God in Christ and in his word, that they find Jesus and their lives are now changed. We've oftentimes said there's, there's really two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles. There really is a third. The third is the church. The third is every believer, whether Jew or Gentile, that has come to faith in Christ. We belong to Jesus. We've been grafted in. But his thoughts do conclude now, Jesus, in his prayer. His thoughts conclude with the believing minority. It goes from the blind majority to the believing minority. And he says, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it. Nobody knows God the Father better than God the Son. No one has known him longer. Even before the first rustling of angels' wings disturbed the silence of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existed in a mystery beyond anything any of us could ever imagine or think. Don't even try. <laughs> they lived together in perfect and mutual love, joy, and harmony. I would venture to say that some people would think that somewhere along the line, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit had discussions and they argued with each other. No, never doesn't happen. Never happens, never will, can't happen. They are the perfect design of unity. I know that many times, and I've said this because I can say it, because you know, you get two Jews together, you get three opinions, right? But the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit are always in unity always in unity. They live together in perfect and mutual love, perfect joy, perfect harmony. There was sweet fellowship and communion one with the other. But listen, though, listen to what Jesus prayed. He said, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. And then in just a moment, whether Jesus literally or figuratively swept up his disciples in a warm embrace of his love. Come on, guys, let's have a huddle. Let's gather together. Whether he did that or not, he added these words. He said, and these have known that thou hast sent me. That was the final revelation of the nature of God. The God of the universe was a God who had, only, had an only begotten and well-beloved Son, a Son who He was willing to send to the world, a world that didn't want to know Him and would actually crown its other contemptible crimes and conceits by crucifying Him. That only begotten Son was sent in order that a way of salvation might be provided for lost humanity. 
For all have sinned, all have fallen short, and all fall short of the glory of God. I want to remind you of what is said in John chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. If you jump down to verse 10 of chapter 1, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus said, these now know that you sent me. And he concludes his prayer by saying, and I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. Here is the final revelation given by Jesus of the name of God. God had revealed himself in the Hebrew scriptures by means of his primary names, he is oftentimes called Elohim, Adonai. We oftentimes transliterate YHWH in the Hebrew to Jehovah or Yahweh or some other form of that sort. The Jews do not pronounce the name, so they say Hashem, which means the name. Not to mention a number of composite names for God, like Yahweh Yireh, which means our God is uh, uh, our, our God, the provider, or God, our provider. Yahweh Tzitkenu, our God, our, uh, the God, our righteousness. Yahweh Shalom, of course, peace. El Elyon, El Shaddai, which means, of course, God is mighty, and so on. But it was Yeshua, Jesus, who brought to this earth the greatest of all the names of God. Remember, it's Father, Father. The Jews wanted to stone Jesus when he called him Father. But when his disciples inquired as to how to pray, Jesus said, pray in this manner, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father. All of this was revealed to his disciples so that his light would be their light. But the last thought is this. His love is to be their love as well. His love is to be their love. Notice how he ends Verse 26, I have declared unto them thy name and will declare it that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them and I in them. The great word of the gospel of Jesus Christ is agape, love. 
It was John's favorite word. He used the noun agapao seven times and the corresponding verb 37 times. He used the word phileo 13 times so that some 57 times he is talking about love in the scriptures. But what do we remember? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. How we take that oftentimes so much for granted and forget what it means for God to love us because we were in the world. We were of the world. We were engrossed in the world. But here we are now in the world but not of the world. And what do we have then to proclaim to the world? The love of God. The love of God who created the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. The one who shows all grace and mercy to every generation. In Romans 5 verse 8, Paul says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can this not be the greatest aspect of love? While we were yet sinners, Christ died. But I close with 1 John 3, verse 23. Listen to these words of John to the church. He said, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. By the way, notice this is not a suggestion. We're not putting up any suggestion boxes in the church, you know. Suggestions are nice, but you know what? We want to deal with what God says is true. This is his commandment, not suggestion, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Love one another. For in doing this, the world will know that you are my disciples when you have love one for another.